1: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Having recently done episodes from the animal rights, animal welfare of the human relationship to wildlife, I feel it's important here to highlight the other side of conservation, landscape habitats, and species survival. Today, Will Stolzenberg joins us again to talk about the other side of saving wildlife – Killing for Conservation, through his journey and book, Rat Island, Predators in Paradise. Welcome back, Will. It's always a pleasure talking with you.
2: Likewise, Ellie. Thanks very much.
1: I'm so glad to be here, and this is going to be an exciting conversation. So to start things off, I'd like to read for our listeners what you wrote for the anthology about compassionate conservation, <laughs> Ignoring Nature No More, edited by Mark Beckoff. May I read it aloud? Uh, please. Okay. And I quote... Through the annals of history and science and literature, one message emerges clear. Our modern penchant for ignoring nature is not some harmless hiccup in an otherwise glorious human saga. It is a deadly sickness inflicting a world of impoverishment and misery for us and our fellow creatures. But in the case for compassion, for opening our hearts to the joys and sufferings of the world beyond our noses, we find a cure for our gravest threats, and at last a reason for hope. That's an absolutely beautiful piece of writing, and it does inspire hope. But here, today, our conversation, and your book, Rat Island, you bring the reader to stand on what would, at first glance, seem to be on opposite ground. That is, eradication conservation, a purposeful wholesale removal of invasive species so tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got into this this story of rat island invasive species and conservation by eradication
2: uh, sure uh, yeah you know I, I've been doing a, a conservation as a reporter conservation biology um, for for a good time probably 15, 20 years, uh, but mostly concentrating on what basically conservation biology is all about, which is saving species on the brink and whatnot. And so you can imagine that most of the stuff I was writing about was was basically about loss. And a lot of the stories that I I wrote were basically about, uh, you know, as one of my mentors once told me, you know, conservation is basically... Uh, beating an orderly retreat, and I always found that an awful sort of a, a way to approach things—a very dispiriting way for somebody who's, you know, rah rah gung ho out there trying to change the world. But here came this story idea from one of my former colleagues. His name was Will Murray, who, uh, who I used to work with at the Nature Conservancy, who was always feeding me ideas. We're always tossing things back and forth. And he said, "You know, here's a story. You, you got it, because, because he was actually on the board of this organization that I wrote about in this book." But he said, this is a story in which we can manufacture a million seabirds at a swipe. You know, and immediately I'm perked up. I said, wait a minute. Because this, this is a story that, that is, is not only about halting the destruction of wildlife. It's about bringing them back. It's about turning the clock back. The kind of thing that I had been taught to believe that we could never do again. That once, you know, we ruined the place, you know, and, and swarmed over this globe the best we can do is beat an orderly retreat. Well, this was something entirely different. And I just, I said, yeah, let's talk. And like I I mentioned, I think I I gave him credit in my book within five minutes of listening to him and said, I got to, I got to write this story.
1: So five minutes got you into how many years of adventure, risk, (laughs) trouble, danger, and an amazing uh, adventure and story?
2: Well, I I wouldn't say there was a whole lot of danger for me. I watched some other people doing dangerous things and wrote about their dangerous exploits, but mainly I was the fly on the wall, you know, I was tagging along to some what turned out to be some really amazing places on earth because uh as it turns out, this book is about islands, uh, oceanic islands for the most part, which is where the action takes place in this book. And so in order to cover it, I had to go to, for uh, me, had to go to a couple of the, the main places where some of these major battles are taking place to eradicate, uh, as this book talks about, to eradicate some of these island invaders that are doing uh horrible numbers on the biodiversity of these islands.
1: So let's back up a, sec- a second. So there is an actual place called Rat Island or Rat Islands. So we need to dis- define why they're called that. And where are they?
2: Yeah, there's there's both. There is a real rat island, and it is it is called Rat Island. It used to be called, I think it was an Aleut name called Howabax. Uh It's way out in the middle of the Bering Sea, about 1,100 miles off the coast of Alaska. Um, and I'll, I'll explain in a minute how it, uh, it got that name. But there's also it's it's the general metaphor for rat islands. There's a whole bunch of rat islands. Ninety percent of the oceanic islands in the world have been invaded by rats, and so these are one of the main characters in my stories. One of the, the the main foes, the villains, if you will. Although I'll also mention how they're not, as we find out, quite the villains that we that we may think. This is you know this is the extent that the rat has has uh, impacted the entire global archipelago, if you will. But uh, back to Rat Island, again, this was a place that uh, was first visited, or, or first invaded, we might say, in the 1700s by a Japanese fishing vessel uh, wrecked offshore. And apparently, a couple rats swam ashore and uh, did what rats do. They procreated very, uh, very successfully. And the next time, one of the Russian explorers came by, he, named, he renamed the island for what uh, he thought was its most distinctive feature, which were rats, and that became Rat Island, and it's also the, the focus of one of the major battles in my book.
1: Well, um, so, and, and then in the book, you, you, you cover quite a few islands. There's Kiska Island, so you, you from the Hawaiian Islands to New Zealand to uh, Islands Australia, plus the Aleutian Islands that have all been, as you said, invaded or visited uh, during our exploration and finding habitable places for us to live. And we bring along those little unintended uh, tag alongs, our rats. Um, anybody who has mice in their house will understand that no matter what you do and you think they're not there, there they are. And we understand that rats are not warm and fuzzy. It's not our first thought of somebody that we'd like to have around. But as you said uh, a minute ago, there's other species that began, began to be invasive, like bunnies donkeys pigs goats and even the really warm and fuzzy one arctic foxes so let's back up a little bit and um this is all you also covered in your book easter island which we now know did not die out through a loss of deforestation that was part of it but it was due to rats and you talk about that in the book so let's start maybe with a really cool part of what your story is and it was one particular bird and one particular species uh richard henry cockapo
2: richard henry kakapo is, is is the most famous perhaps the most famous parrot in the world and that kind of gives away part of the story and that this is an animal that uh uh, is known only from New Zealand the kakapo uh, it used to be one of the most common birds in the entire country of New Zealand um, uh, and this was before uh, people came along and uh, the kakapo to, to back up a little bit is 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 the largest uh least flight worthy as as somebody has has mentioned i think that flies like a brick sort of a bird completely flightless parrot two feet tall gets up to six sometimes nine pounds these are huge birds and what they've become in this island of of new zealand where there were no native ground predators is basically the the uh uh the equivalent of a possum you know it's scurrying around in the bottom of the forest scraping up it's it's a vegetarian it eats fruits and leaves and berries and whatnot um it'll climb the trees but it again it has it, it has these non-functional wings and so basically has to scramble up the trees it's just an adorable uh big-headed creature that you know you can cradle in your arms like a like an infant um but you can imagine that back way back in the in the day before people arrived the only the only predators that this animal really dealt with and the reason that it became flightless didn't need wings were were raptors the big eagles from the sky and so what it developed in order to hide from them was the cryptic coloring it looks like a bush it's really green and it's very slow and it's and when danger comes from above it freezes okay it also has this odd smell that's been likened to very many things by many people, but it's a distinctive aspect of the kakapo. Now, imagine all of these traits when all of a sudden you have something that comes on the island, such as a weasel with a very good nose. The thing is a very a, a, a great voracious predator uh, can search out things like the kakapo because what does it do? The, the ferret eats rabbits and whatnot. So this was this was like a, basically easy meat, sitting ducks for things like weasels and and ferrets and whatnot and and when those came along when people started um exploring new zealand bringing their own animals along some of them predators like this uh the kakapo took a dive to the point that now there are some i just checked the other day i think the total number of kakapo's alive is 127 and that hasn't grown much over the last few years and so it's a very, very tenuous, very precarious existence for these birds. Yeah. Richard Henry Kakapo was found back in the 1970s, and he is, uh, like I say, he was. Uh, I, I have to also give another part away that he, he died just a couple of years back. It was a very tragic thing, but they think he might have been over 100 years old when he finally passed on. Oh my so, goodness. one of the most endearing animals of, of all conservation history.
1: So um, what you've enlightened us with in this brief little moment, and we're going to have to take a break here in about five minutes, is the beginning of this story and why we need, you'd started out with conservation biology, and that was your beginning, and turning into what you would called conservation biology SWAT teams. And um, our listeners can imagine when Uh, A species has evolved with no natural predator on land, and suddenly we introduce um, carnivores, albeit small ones, or even omnivorous small ones, ferrets, weasels, rats, pigs, goats, those kinds of things that either eat the animal, the species itself, or eat it out of house and home by eating its food resources. What happens to these islands? So quickly, um, or briefly before the break, and then we'll pick it up after the break, Um, tell us a little bit about why these islands are so critical and the important species they carry, the winged species, uh, the avian species that a lot of us don't think about because they're way out there in these uh, unfriendly waters.
2: Yeah, the statistics on on island populations are pretty dramatic. Uh, They figure that perhaps 20% of all species on earth are, uh, have evolved as island species. And as many as, uh, and this is a, this is a, uh, uh, are we still there?
1: Yes, we're still here.
2: Okay, sorry, I heard a little beep. Yeah, it was uh, the message. 20% of all uh, of of creatures are evolved on 5% of the land mass on earth. So if you're a conservationist wanting to make great leaps and you want the best best, uh, bang for your buck, you're looking at islands, and some of these islands, as I say now, they, they harbor upwards of 50% of all the endangered species um, in this world. So they are, they are the primo, the prizes of conservation biologists who really want to make a, uh, a lasting impact. And one of the things you'd mentioned, uh, the, the avian species, these are animals, uh, the seabirds for the most part, they are attracted to the islands for one big reason, and that is They go there because there aren't any predators, like these land-based predators I mentioned, the weasels, the cats, uh, you know, all the the big ones that you can can imagine, the dogs. All all these families have not made it to these uh, outer islands, and this is where uh, animals gather in these enormous numbers, like seabirds, uh, millions at a time, because these are some of the safest havens on Earth for an animal that nests on the ground.
1: So when we introduce an invasive species like the rat and time has passed by and the rat or these other um, land-based predators have their way with these relatively predator-free avian seabird colonies in humongous masses, you're talking millions of birds, and they start doing the damage, what you found in in your book was they were being reduced in numbers to perilous perilous numbers of endangerment of not being able to reproduce
2: yeah it's just amazing what you know what a few uh predators can do to a big colony, of course, there's nothing stopping them from killing as many as they want. these birds, most of them have no defenses um there's a there's a case actually in the south atlantic um uh, of South Africa an island there where they have a, a mouse a house mouse that's uh, like the one that you may be familiar with in your house uh, your garage or whatnot that are eating albatross that weigh 17 pounds 300 times their size uh they are devouring these things as they sit because the birds have no defenses and so this is just a, a, an idea of the scale of the problem and then once again when you have animals that can reproduce like rats and mice and become carnivorous on these islands, you can imagine the carnage that takes place. And sure enough, um, some of these islands have been literally wiped out from millions to just handfuls of birds hanging on on the very edges.
1: It's astonishing. So I hope our listeners understand once again, this uh, cruel to be kind philosophy, the eradication side of conservation. And uh, after the break, we're going to get into a little bit more of where we began, the compassionate side and having to kill for conservation. But um, so we're... I'll, I'll tell you what, we're, we've we got like a minute left, which is not really enough time to get into much. So why don't we go ahead and cut to a break now. And then we're going to come back and talk about Will's investigation and the journey and set the stage of what he learned and why he undertook this journey and wrote the book Rat Island. And you can find more uh, out more about rat island and will you can find him on his website at willstolzenberg.com follow him on twitter he does amazing posts he's on top of everything i can barely keep up with him and you can also follow him on facebook so stick with us we'll be right back
0: streaming live The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
1: Welcome back this is Ellie Weiss our wild world and my amazing guest Will Stolzenberg and we're talking about his book the adventure thriller uh, but real life journey Rat Island. So right before the break we were talking about the background of invasive species and killing for conservation so Will how about for our listeners let's set the stage who are the players in this drama?
2: Well, if you want to go way back, uh, we'll start with the people who, who started the whole thing, and these are not the conservationists, but the people who actually started seeding some of these oceanic islands, and that started about 3,000 years ago. Uh, those were some of the first uh, seafarers that, that started their way from coast of New Guinea and made their way across these uh, huge expanses of the Pacific Ocean, bringing with them the first exotic four-legged animals to some of these islands and in particular. Particular the rat, but I'll skip all that history and just say that they did an amazing job of, of bringing the rats to a lot of islands. But I'll 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 skip then to the the people who started doing something about it, and these are the New Zealanders, the Kiwis, uh, who live on an, one of the most amazing islands of all, and that this is an island, one of the hugest islands that was never uh, uh, invaded by. By mammals, but was uh, became this kingdom of birds, and all the birds that had when this island floated away from Gonwan land way way back, uh, it took with it you know the, the 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 rudiments of of the birds of the birds, and the birds in an amazing display of evolution, uh, not needing to use their wings. A lot of them became flightless, and so this is one of the most amazing places to go see where they basically taking over the role for the mammals. They still have flighted birds, of course. They have uh, an amazing variety of colorful, very uh, uh, um, uh, colorful songsters in the trees, but they also have these amazing birds that walk around, like the kakapo that I mentioned a little while back. The kiwi is another bird, you know, the kiwis from from New Zealand. And so this was a place where when uh, European colonists started, uh, shall we say, invading New Zealand along with their uh, domestic animals, a lot, along with their predators, a lot of these birds started to go the way of the dinosaurs. As many as half of the species, uh, of bird species of New Zealand, which again is an island of birds for the most part, they have some amazing insects too, but for the most part, think of it as an island of birds, as many as half of them had gone under uh, within just the last couple of centuries, and so conservationists in New Zealand are the classical examples of being up against the wall. I mean, they had seen half of their avifauna uh, taken by some of these uh, exotics, and so they decided to do something about it. They, there's a there's a you know they have a saying out there the Kiwi can do attitude, and sure enough, they were some of the first ones to. Uh, pioneer the use of, of, of broad-scale application of poisons. And this is where the controversy comes in. But this is where they were some of the first people to... Uh, there used to be a saying that once you had rats on an island, you were never going to get them off because they're just so crafty and so hard to get to. You're never going to get the last one. You leave two rats on the island, you might as well just throw everything down a rat hole because they're going to come back, as you know. But they, a, a few of these Kiwis started pioneering the... Uh, the process of reading entire islands of rats and they became successful at it They became world leaders at it. They started scaling up started doing bigger and bigger islands and before you know it Everybody is looking to the Kiwis to help them plan their eradications because again This is this idea that you could restore these islands Started way down there in, in New Zealand and Australia. I should give them credit to Great um, Britain started their own program and again it spread to uh, finally to the United States and now we have these these international teams who are out there doing amazing work on some of the, the the last great bastions of of oceanic islands.
1: Well, it's it's fascinating and it's fabulous and and that was a, a an excellent sort of summary of the big scope of where it began, um, and where we are now and um, what the book covers is all the journey in between and it's rather a a length a, a long period of time from the beginning of what you had said, the noticing of these bird species and uh, their decline to the point that something had to be done. And then what was so fascinating and what's so great about reading your books, and I strongly urge all of our listeners to pick up Any one of Will's books, Where the Wild Things Were and Rat Island, and then um, refer to our previous conversation on Our Wild World about his upcoming book about cougars, which I can't wait to read. But There's a big period of time in here. And what impressed me was how long it took for this veritable conservation list of who's who from professional hunters to semi-retired poachers to conservation biologists and the SWAT teams we were talking about to get permission to do these eradications. It it, it took a long time. And that's outside the US. We, we, We won't even get into the US where we have all these laws and litigation. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the scope of the scale of time that it took to get permission to do these these projects of eradication.
2: Well, again, it wasn't it, you know they they started back in the uh, in the nineteen sixties, and one of the one of the primary characters back then was a, a guy named Don Merton. He is one of the absolute heroes of conservation in, in, in all of history you know, for some of the, the the animals he's brought back from the brink. One of them being um, the kakapo. But, yeah, the, the idea back then was either that this this is not a big problem. The the, the whole scale and scope, as you mentioned, of, of the problem of exotic animals invading islands and the damage they can do wasn't really well appreciated because a lot of the decisions are coming down from people who are in, you know, ivory towers and whatnot. It was people like Merton who got out there and actually seeing the damage done, who'd been to these places enough to know. This is what an island looks like without rats or sounds like in the case of birds in New Zealand. You know, you have this wonderful, wonderful cacophony of songs every day. And then after the rats have come, the place is silent. You know, it's a, it's a very, very kind of visceral uh, reaction to the destruction of nature that people like Merton, these guys who are out there with the dirty knees and, you know, crawling around in the field and whatnot, they were the ones who could appreciate it. They're also the ones who took it upon themselves, even when their superiors didn't always agree, uh, you know, said, by golly, I'm going to clear this island of rats. And, the, and a lot of these guys were renegades. You know, a lot of them, they, they could not get the permission they needed in time. Um, and so they took it upon themselves. And, you know, they weren't always the most popular people in their departments, but they were the ones who got things done. And, you know, I think time has borne out that they, they were the real heroes, that they, in taking the chances that they did, they're the ones that pioneered. Uh, the art you will, if you will of of uh, island and conservation eradication
1: and it is an art, it is a skill, and once again, read the book because it's it is an adventure story, it is a thriller, it is a drama, it is a love story, and it's written with such heart and it's important to understand because part of the problem of getting these permissions for these renegades, these conservation biologists to do this was it goes back to where we started animal rights, animal welfare, compassionate conservation, and does humanity have the right to kill off one species to protect another? And, you know, where's the compassion in that? So um, how do you respond to that kind of a question when somebody comes at you with that and says, do we have that right?
2: Uh, I tend to respond with great confusion and all sorts of apologies because, I, you know, it's, I, I really don't have the great answer to that, I'll 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 take a shot at it. But you know, I've had some of these conversations with another one of your guests, Mark Beckhoff, who's an animal behaviorist and and one of the 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 key players in the, in the new idea of, of uh, conservation through compassion. And and I really admire uh, Mark's opinions. But there is this there's this dilemma, and the dilemma is, you know, if you want to say we are not going to step in, we're not going to cause any pain to anybody. I think by default and what we've seen in the islands is that you are going to do pain to a lot of creatures by doing nothing um and that is the fact that when when we have been the ones that have released some of these monsters into the uh into the islands and i i hesitate to call them monsters i mean let's just for for the time being we'll consider them as invaders we'll call them monsters but um these are animals that are have never been seen by a lot of these evolutionary creations and the carnage is just incredible and if you want to talk about suffering you talk about having a bird sitting there having uh mice burrowing into its rear end you know and eating it from the inside out or having its brain eaten out as it sits there i mean this is this is some pretty gruesome stuff going on there uh on the other side of the coin is okay somebody wants to do something about it you have to kill the invader now this is where some people you know may have a difference with uh conservation by eradication they say well there's got to be a way that we can do this humanely you know have our cake and eat it too how can we save these creatures that, that we want to save the, the natives and still not do harm or pain to these animals that we are responsible for releasing on the islands and that's the bugaboo that's the place where we have not gotten to yet. it's not we have not gotten the technology so far to be able to ferry every one of you know, a million rats off a, This this Island sitting in the middle of the Bering Sea, we just don't have the technology for that. But we do know that if we sit and wait, or we've seen cases of this, if we sit and wait and let nature take its course, we are dooming some of the native populations to uh, uh, the carnage. And so that's where you're stuck. You have to say, I mean, you kind of have to say, I'm going to have to do some bad to do the better good.
1: That was an excellent answer. In And, you know, I wouldn't apologize at all for that. I did an episode uh, a couple weeks ago called, you know, Uncomfortably Perched on the Horns of Dilemma, and this is what we're facing, exactly what you said. We've introduced species where they never were before, and we don't have the technology to, quote-unquote, humanely um, eradicate them. And I, I would bring up the question, what is humane when we see what we do to each other and the damage and the cost in wild lives and animal species that we're causing just by doing what we do and our, you know, quest for consumption and all of that sort of stuff, which will be a rant for another day. But um, let's go back to how humane of an option we had at the time and the toxicity, the poisons that were used and um, some of the conflicts and conundrums that the biologists faced. So you ha- you used a, a a poison they used uh a poison I'm not sure how to pronounce it by by byfercatum. Yeah, I <laughs> we'll I've sort of you know, been through that one.
2: I've heard it both ways. Uh it's Bradifakum or brudip, <laughs> brud- Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> so this is, it's a really toxic poison, but the way it was dispensed was going back to what you said, was an art and a skill, and the planning that it took, and it was like, you know, I'm going to call it the Hiroshima of the atom bomb. It was done with such precision. Tell us uh, a little bit about that.
2: Okay, now this, this, uh, this, this poison that we're talking about is just one of uh, one of the ways and this is the one they usually use for rats they use a whole a lot of different things for other animals like cats and for goats and pigs and whatnot basically those are traps and bullets which is a whole other issue but poison is what they usually use four rats and this poison was developed um uh, it was actually first developed as uh you may be familiar with the term warfarin which is used for uh people with blood clots it's for heart uh, you know preventing heart attacks and whatnot it's a blood thinner it's an anticoagulant and um they started experimenting with this and you know of course a lot of the experiments when they're clearing these uh, chemicals for people, they used them on rats. Well, they found if you fed a lot of this to the rats, the rats would die. And so, aha! This became a very uh, common, very popular use for uh, um, controlling rats way back when, in uh, in the post-war era. And then, uh, when they started applying it to these islands, they realized that you know this it wasn't quite doing the job because it took too much. You know, you had to get too much into the rat and uh there were just too many uh possibilities for screwing up what happened was when they made a much uh stronger version of this where you could use a tiny amount um that would you know just one one or two ingestions would have the rat on the on the way to death and that was when they kind of made that big leap where they could seed an island with with this this poison and be sure they got every last rat now that's one thing the poison became a lot better that was one of the things but also the way that they distributed it became a lot more scientific a lot more precise they went through and and laid out they started laying out these grids on these islands you know like they would just make a grid with a with a trap or a little a little tube or whatnot in which they would place a bait uh, about every whatever they decided every 15 yards or whatnot and this is basically covering the territory of a rat
1: or a rat family, and
2: so the idea is that they would put the baits in there, and every rat would get a chance to visit them well they they'd first start off with baits that were non poisonous just to get the rats who are very, very neophobic, you know they don't like new things, they test them out they're very crafty uh but once they get used to the bait, they say, "Aha, this is a free source of food. They see these little tubes coming and and the next time around they jump right in and they start devouring this stuff. Well, the next time around, there's poison in the bait. So uh, they they perfected this means, and they started on a small scale of just a couple acres and then just started expanding and expanding. They had good success. You know, they would go back. No rats were surviving, and they were just beating the odds. And... uh, You know, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but they've now been uh, uh, dealing with islands that are are 75 miles long in some of the most ungodly places on Earth, and they are getting every last rat. So, yeah, there's been some evolution in the uh, eradication of rats by these people.
1: Well, this is this is fascinating because what you've also just highlighted in that in kill, killing for conservation or eradication of invasive species which is the much better way to put it um, killing for conservation kind of strikes that sensationalist tone which i don't intend to do but it also highlights very um poignantly that in order to take care of this invasive species, you have to understand the invasive species. And your book talks a lot about that, uh, the mindset of the rat and how, and without giving it away, once again, pick up Rat Island. It's an incredible book that in order to take care of the problem, you have to understand the problem.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what really impressed me about some of the the early uh, practitioners down in new zealand is that they they you know i i know it, it sounds ironic to, to say this but they they really enjoyed the rats i mean they loved these are some people who go out on the field and observe rats you know they would sit places and just watch places like in a dump or something or in a pigsty and watch the rats coming and going to learn everything they, can, they could about their behavior and this is what enabled them to understand something more about rat society. That taught them that, well, indeed, it's, it's not just one mass, chaotic confusion of rats out there, but there's an actual social dominance hierarchy to these rats. And therefore, if you could, you know, just train the big males, who are the ones that are going to go in first and eat their fill, um, you know, once the once the males have eaten their fill, then everyone else feels okay. It's it's okay to go in. But you had to understand the workings of rat society in order to come up with this system getting all the rats off and you know I, I don't I, I do realize as I'm saying this uh, irony uh, that these same people who so appreciated it and were so fascinated by the rats became such good killers of them that as you say that's exactly what it took it's biology
1: well and it's also important to understand that these biologists these wildlife biologists don't enjoy killing it's not what they came to do their their goal is to protect and um, help species survive so understanding behavior biology behavior and biogeography is all critically important to not only conserving species but to eradicating certain other species so it's time to cut away for a break stick with us this is my guest will stolzenberg we're talking about his book rat island and we'll be right back
0: W I L D I Z E dot O R G Streaming Live The Leader in Internet Talk Radio VoiceAmerica You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World We want to hear from you Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788 that's one 866 If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: Welcome back. This is Our Wild World and my guest, Will Stolzenberg, and we're talking about his book, Rat Island. So, uh... During the first two parts of this program today, we covered a lot about what the book is without giving too much away. Once again, the point is to get our listeners to read the book, and you can find more at uh, willstolzenberg.com, that's his website. Uh, And the other books that he's written, follow him on Twitter and follow him on Facebook. So, Will, let's take a little bit of our last uh, section here and talk about your personal journey and what you went through, and um, how long did did this research take you, and did it turn out to be more than you had expected?
2: Yeah, sure. It it, it was exciting. It 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 always takes longer than I expect, or so <laughs> I can say that it, it was probably a good solid year of of tracking things down, and well, maybe maybe even two. I don't know, and then another year of writing, but uh yeah i mean i i realized right on it was a very daunting task and i i had i wasn't quite sure how i was going to get to some of these places because after all this is about some of the most ungodly places on earth uh you know not not i don't i don't mean that in a in a derogatory way these are some of the most beautiful places but they are so hard to get to which makes them so spectacular in terms of wildlife um so fragile in many cases in terms of these invaders but so hard to get to so uh, yeah, I went to both both ends of the of the globe, if you will. I went to New Zealand to visit there, were the Kiwis, of course, the the pioneers of the whole book. And then I made a trip uh, to Rat Island and to the place that's uh, was next up on the uh, on the docket for rat eradication. It is a spectacular place called Kiska. So um, yeah, it was it, it was quite the adventure. One had me down there tooling around in in the, in the south. Both both the islands of, of New Zealand and visiting with some of the uh, some of the top dogs down there. Uh, so I, I think one of the, the take homes from New Zealand. and I, I've been all over the place in in, in this country, and one thing I uh, was not prepared for was was how uh, and I don't want to call it desolate quite, but it's 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 a it's an eerie sort of place in which you you go into a forest. Uh, this I'm talking about New Zealand now. And there are no mammals. I mean, there's, you know, there's okay. there's no squirrels running around in the trees. And unless something has been released there, you know, unless there's a ferret running around or a rat by, by some mistake, everything that you're going to see that isn't an insect or maybe a, a reptile is, is a bird. So um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really odd place. In the countryside of New Zealand, of course, there's a lot of domestic animals. Uh, uh herds you know that's one of the reasons that the place has been cleared and one of the reasons that a lot of the birds are gone and they you know they have herds of of domestic of, of elk that they're raising there for meat deer and of course a lot of sheep a uh, beautiful countryside but again it's got this eerie sense and when you go into one of the, the few you know primeval forests that are still still have the main complement of birds it's 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 both a, a wonderful and an eerie place because of the bird song. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, incredible place to listen to bird song. But again, uh, to be in a place where you can't expect you know, anything so simple as a deer or a, or a squirrel to, to jump out at you is just a little, a little unnerving.
1: I sort of Um, call it when I take people to Africa, it's you don't have much of home to hang on to. You're outside of that comfort zone and expectations sort of get thrown out the window. And a lot of which I haven't been to New Zealand. It's on my bucket list. And a lot of what you're saying is reminiscent of what we think of as the Amazon, rich in biodiversity, rich in tropical and plant and flora and fauna. But let's get rid of the fauna side. And um, keep it at the avian side, unless avian is part of fauna, flora, fauna, avian. Um, I should know that. But um, what you're talking about is, is that eeriness and that um, immensity that Lauren Isley talks about in the immense journey and evolution. When you're in a place that is not meant for us, those untrammeled wild places that we really are a visitor
2: and, and, and one thing that I can appreciate when you're in a place like that and, and all you have left is your birds and your giant stick insects and all these other wonderful creations that are no, found nowhere else is that I, I can understand fully the, the, the patriotism, the, you know, the, the idea that you have to save them. You know, you're this tiny country and you're, you're in a, you know, you're probably one of the few biologists. I can very much see how some people realize that, you know, this is our country by God and this this is the fauna that I'm left to deal with. Um, it's, it's, it's threadbare maybe, but I'm going to save the very last of it. Um, well, it,
1: ha- it highlights yeah. the fact that, you know, we feel the world has gotten very small, hot, flat, and crowded as Thomas Friedman puts it. Mm-hmm. But in between our urban areas, there is a lot of space. And yeah. we forget when we're in our urban humanized landscapes that this space is, is immense.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that to go to the other hemisphere now up, up into the Aleutians. That's one of the things that strikes you is that you you take off from from Anchorage, heading out over this vast sea, and just you're up there forever, you know, and and just in in a prop plane flying out over this immense expanse of uh, just these incredible. Most of them are uninhabited, you know. There's this chain of this, this chain of volcanic islands stretching like a an elephant's tusk halfway across to Siberia, but uh, you you realize that this is this is one huge wilderness and when they set you down in one of these places where there are in fact a few people there's a there's an air base out there and and a naval base and you know you realize very quickly that you know these you were at the ends of the earth and it's it's a real privilege to be in some of these places and then and also to see, like I say, some of the things that are that are threatened now or are the kind of things, after you've seen them, you can understand why the biologists are out there and fighting so hard for them. You can understand why when you see this colony of 10 million, well, I'm, I may be exaggerating, but they, there's been various estimates of this one colony of, of least auklets on the island of Kiska between 1 and 6 or 10 million. But, you know, you just lose track after a while because the air is just full of, these locust-like birds that just completely cover uh, the sky coming into their, their nesting grounds at night. And to sit there and watch this for, for you know, an hour, an hour or more as they just keep coming in, streaming in by the millions, you just realize that there's, there's no place on earth that, that you could witness this anywhere else. And also one of the reasons that most people are never going to get there. Most people are never going to realize what an incredible spectacle is out there. And so you got to have your hats off to these people who are out there braving the cold and the wind and to save these birds were really you know if they were to disappear um, not a lot of us back here would know about it We'd but then again
1: a lot of us know. might not survive because of the biological role these these birds play in our global ecosystems
2: that's true too. Yeah, but I mean for, there'd be a while when there you know before the stuff hit the fan, I think there would be a while where there would just be this miss something missing. I think, uh, I only think a few we'd people would know about it.
1: I think we'd feel it. I think there's yeah. there's a growing number of people that would feel that that loss, that lack. I would hope so. And well, that, I
2: I like that thought.
1: <laughs> you know, that's that's what your book books leave me with is that we do have reason to hope. And that's what Rat Island is, is really a story of hope, even though we're talking about eradication. It is a story of hope. So toward the end of um, the book, with once again, without giving it away, one of your um, chapters is titled Epilogue, Island, Earth, and World War. Where do we stand today on the island conservation? Um, and, you know, where do, where do we look for toward the future? So we have these Literally awesome places where maybe it's not a place for people to go that's why there are species with wings, and we shouldn't inhabit them because they're already inhabited by others. So where do we go from here?
2: Well, the most logical place is to the mainland, and uh, you know as, as I say as, as these as these practitioners get more sophisticated at what they're doing they keep upping the scale every year i mean I, I think the the group island conservation is the last time i checked they were over 800 eradications under their belt and so they're going gangbusters they've kind of got a lot of this stuff figured out but now the, all the eyes are looking to okay we're we're dealing fairly well with the islands but where's the next you know big uh big revolution going to come it's got to come on the mainland because th- these are the places that we have not been successful uh, so successful in fighting back uh, the uh, invasives, the exotics, and places that they are doing incredible damage also on the mainlands. But there's the, there's another complicating factor on the mainlands. You've got the size, number one. You've got these places it just fill in like vacuums after you you do your eradications. But you've got people who have differing opinions about this. And so it gets a lot more murky, a lot more convoluted and, on the mainlands. But that's that's place where, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> – there's a lot of work to be done on the mainland, and that's where I think this is headed. Nevada, they're trying to perfect some of these eradication uh, uh, techniques for some of the the bigger wildernesses on the mainland.
1: And that, once again, is what's so great about your books, and this one in particular, is you do bring that up. You know, what happens when we start hitting... North America, the United States, the coast of California, where we have a lot of these emotional reactions, knee-jerk reactions, this animal welfare, the uh, compassionate conservation, no animal should ever die at the hands of humans, and these varying opinions, plus the, the legal loopholes and the legal shenanigans and um, hurdles that we have to go through so once again I advise our listeners urge our listeners to pick up Rat Island read it it is an incredible book it's a full of astonishing information on all sides of the coin and um, talks a little bit about what happens as Will was just saying when we start hitting the mainland because that is sort of the last bastion of Uh, where we need to start dealing with some of these issues. So, Will, moving forward, we've got a few minutes left for today's program. Should we be worried? what's the future looking like and do you think we're going to have an opportunity on the mainlands to pull these varying perspectives together from the conservation biology SWAT teams to the animal rights, animal welfare, to invasive species, to endangered species protection. Do you think we're going to pull it together? Well,
2: I mean, I, I may have to fall back on that, that line I hate so much about you know, beating an orderly retreat. I, I think that we're still we're still in that realm of conservation on the mainland you know and that, that the best we can do is just to to stance the bleeding um but you know i mean I, I guess what i get from the islands is that those are examples you know that these very succinct little uh, battlegrounds where success has come you know that if you know if you consider in terms of restoring these magnificent flocks of sea birds or whatnot, um, you know we can show that we can do these things and and you know whether or not this is going to translate to the mainland at least there's the example there to give you hope and, and encouragement um and and in fact you, you know some of the techniques can be can be used on the mainland but at least you know these are these are at least wins for the most part you know they're not just another loss and you know another statistic in the book about how we we lost this many this much acreage on in this year and you know uh, you know whatnot i just i just think it's it's a it's a really encouraging thing to have these examples of success in conservation and restoration which is where it's all about i mean we've certainly got enough to clean up i mean we've got our plates full for many lifetimes um why not start i mean that's that's where the game is for the i i think for the, the rest of humanity it's it's restoring things.
1: I agree with you 100%. And that's why it's wonderful to have you on this program. So um, let's talk about, you know, on the mainland, we've got national parks we do have these areas and in Africa it's a great example we have these buffer zones where are the you know the the zones between our human habitation and our um, livestock goats pigs donkeys horses um, and the things that come along with that grain food and the invasives rats weasels and all the uh, furry things carnivores that like to eat the protected species inside these parks. So it, wouldn't you say it is really up to us as individuals to take responsibility when we live near these wild wildlife areas and wilderness areas, our are, are protected zones, that we as individuals take, as you just said, get started. Don't wait for someone else. Get started in our own backyard. How can we do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh that's really that's really where it's at these days is that you you have to deal with what you've got and you know i you know i i don't live out in the country i i live in a nice place of west virginia but uh you know there are certain things you can do with your life to you know maybe sacrifice a little bit of your own pleasure to you know make room for some of the creatures and 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 also to accept the fact that everything doesn't have to have this utility i mean we always like to in terms of biodiversity and that this great web of life and if you cut a strand you know it's gonna all the trickle down theories and everything well at some point i think you just have to accept that we don't understand what's going to happen if 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 we don't take better care of some of our fellow creatures and just accept it and and do the best we can to appreciate them and accommodate them as as best we can i i don't i think a lot of that comes comes down to awareness and a lot of the has been written in the past years about you know we don't we don't, we're not spending a whole lot of time outdoors as a society anymore. And I think it's coming back to bite us because I think we're losing a lot of the respect and appreciation for a lot of those things that if we were just a little closer to, they'd open our eyes a little bit more, that would, uh, conservation would follow, the conservation ethic would follow. And so I, I, I don't think, uh, in terms of specific things to do, you know, there's, there's laundry lists. I'm sure you can find them anywhere, but I, I think for me, the, the major thing is to, open your eyes and and you know appreciate that that other world out there that's not the one that you're used to that's not paved and it's not inside and um I think with that that the, the the rest will take care of itself.
1: I think that was an absolutely beautiful beautiful answer and it is a lot of what I talk about on this program and you you stated it succinctly we get our nature through virtual Uh, interaction these days through the computer the tv whatever and we're not really spending or through recreation for us and not really always thinking about existence of wildness and other species for their own sake and the aesthetic that they do provide for us psychologically so your answer was beautiful and it basically i would sum it up is that no matter what we do every little thing counts whether it's using one less plastic bag to making a sacrifice and sacrifice you know I'm going to say doesn't necessarily mean giving something up it's not necessarily a a negative especially when what's at stake is the future of us and the future of this stunning island earth and the only thing of its kind as far as we're aware and that it's worth protecting and it's it's worth our our giving it Two moments of thought and stepping outside the door and uh, seeing what's out there. So we've got, um, well, actually, we're, I'm sorry, we're out of time today. The time just flew by. So um, once again, Will, I thank you so much for being with us today.
2: And thank you so much for having me again, Ellie. I appreciate it.
1: You bet. And I look forward to your next book, Cougar, and hopefully we'll be able to have another conversation about that. So once again, follow uh, Will. Find him on at willstolzenberg.com. Follow him on Twitter and Facebook. And that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week.